grade will return with me uh, later for communion. I don't know if you know this or not. It's been kind of a well-kept secret. But my little girl got married yesterday. So, <laughs> it's a whole different experience um, when you are the father of the bride and also the officiating pastor. And uh, that privilege is something that I, I just cannot express. This is now the fourth time that I have presided over the sacred and holy ceremony of a wedding for my children. Uh, all three of my boys and my only adult daughter, you're not getting married yet. <laughs> and each time, it is an exciting thing for me. The reason that it is so exciting is because I get to tell them and teach them and walk with them through the reality that God, our Heavenly Father, has chosen to reveal Himself to us through relationships. And so when we're talking about marriage, I want to tell you today that everything you've heard is wrong. And we need to start over from the foundation of the Scriptures. See, we live in a world today where there's a lot of confusion about what marriage actually is what sexuality is about, what family is about. We've lost our footing. We've lost track. And so, as Shelley introduced uh, or announced earlier, we're going to be having our annual uh, membership meeting in three weeks on the 17th. And we'll be introducing... Uh, a proposed statement on marriage, sexuality, and family in that uh, meeting. And so I wanted to take a little time, I'm going to take the next three Sundays to walk through what the Bible tells us about the, those topics. Or I should say that topic because they go together as one. And as we do this, we'll, we'll get into our promised series in Ephesians. We'll do that after the meeting. That, that's still coming. So if you're here to listen to Ephesians, you're going to have to just wait a few weeks. But I do want to tell you, this: as we're working through this, this idea uh, is big. And it's important for us to take the, these, these special times, these special sermons, to walk through these principles together. Are you ready? Let's jump into it. Our core reality for today is that God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to illustrate His relationship to His people. God designed marriage, sexuality, and family 
to illustrate his relationship to his people. Now, as we are walking through this, uh, I want you to know we're going to be getting into these topics. We're going to be a pretty, pretty PG, you know, normal uh, situation here as we as we normally would. Um, but as we are walking through this, be forewarned. If you're uncomfortable talking about sexuality, you're going to be uncomfortable. Uh, we're going to get into some specifics next week. We'll talk about parenting the following week. We're going to get all of these things together. Today we're just going to have a broader overview. Uh, but as we walk through it, understand that God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to illustrate His relationship to His people. So everything about what we do as a church hinges on our belief that God's Word is inerrant, it has no errors in the original autograph, and so it's trustworthy in the, in the copies and translations that we have received, but in its original uh, form, when it was first written, is utterly without error, completely inspired by God. Every word, every, every jot or tittle, as, as the King James would say, every little piece of punctuation in the original manuscripts, completely without error and absolutely inspired by God. We base everything on this. God's Word is our standard for faith and practice. So it doesn't matter what the church says if the church isn't following what God's Word says. It does not matter what the culture says if the culture is not following what God's Word says. We don't live primarily as citizens of our nation or of our culture, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so if we belong to Christ, if we have trusted Him for our salvation, God has called us His children, His friends, citizens of His kingdom. As citizens, we are ambassadors here. So everything that we do in this world, in this kingdom... We represent our Father, our Heavenly King. We represent that kingdom. Now, as we move into this, th those principles apply when we're talking about the idea of marriage. Now, in the last 10 years in the United States, marriage has completely flipped on its ear as far as our culture is concerned. We went in a very short time from the majority of people in America, 71% uh, at the time that, uh, that President Obama took office, including President Obama and the uh, Democratic candidate who, that ran against him. All of the, that 71% believing or stating that they believe that marriage, traditional marriage, is the only marriage that one man and one woman for life is marriage. Now, I'm not going to even pretend that the majority of Americans knew why they said that. But that was what most Americans, by a, long, by a wide margin, believed. And just a couple of short years later, less than four years after that, those numbers had just about completely flipped. Why? Why would our opinions change? 
did our opinions change or did the way we respond to polls change? I don't know. But what I do know is our opinions, when they change, reflect the fact that we did not have a solid understanding in the first place. If you have convictions, convictions do not readily change. It doesn't just flip because the, the people around you change their opinion. We don't generally like people who change their opinion based on who they're around. We want people who stand for something. It's built into us. Understand this. God has a plan for our relationships, for all of our relationships. And as uh, those who go through premarital counseling with me will discover, marriage is not in its essence, it's not ontologically different than other relationships. It's just higher, bigger, deeper, wider. It is the epitome of human relationships. And so God uses this as a picture of His love for us. Notice this. God intentionally built marriage, sexuality, and family into the created order. God intentionally built marriage, sexuality, and family into the creative order. Chuckle a little bit if you're already uncomfortable with how many times I've said sexuality. Okay. Get used to it, because it's not going away. And that's intentional. Just as God built this into the created order, I wanted to intentionally make sure that we hear and say these words. Because, and this is really super important. Hopefully you're going to catch this by the time we get done with this text. Sex in itself is not dirty. Sin is what makes it dirty. God created marriage, family, through this whole process involving sexuality. He could have done it any number of ways. He's God, right? But He designed you the way He designed you on purpose. Notice what we read in Genesis 1. 26 and 27. Oh, let's just read 27 specifically. So God created mankind in His own image. It doesn't stop there, does it? In the image of God, He created them. That's us, mankind. Male and female, He created them. God intentionally made us male and female. He intentionally created us as a species to be a gendered sexual being. It's not an accident, and it doesn't come after sin enters the equation. This is before the fall, the created order that God looked at and said, this is very good. We need to recognize that. God intentionally built marriage, sexuality, and family into the created order. Now, we're going to see over time, I, I can't possibly get this all in today, I can't possibly get it all in in the next three weeks. So what we're going to try to do is give you enough of an overview that you will understand that this is part of God's plan for us. All of the scriptures, woven throughout the entire narrative from Genesis to Revelation, is this picture of marriage, sexuality, and family. 
We'll see its purpose as we go through, but God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to illustrate his relationship to his people. Mark this down as we see that he intentionally built this into the creative order. Marriage is designed and instituted by God as a permanent covenant between one man and one woman. Marriage is designed and instituted by God as a permanent covenant between one man and one woman. Well, Zeiger, where does it say that? Again, look at Genesis chapter 2. In the very nature of creation, God has created us male and female, and just being male was not sufficient. Just having Adam, who was not in any way alone as far as the presence of other beings, he didn't have the presence of other human beings. There were lots of animals, and he interacted with them. So he was not alone. But nobody suitable, no one like him, no one else bearing the image of God was there. And so God, then in chapter 2, starting with verse 22, he made a woman. From the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Then Moses, the writer or compiler of this, goes on to say, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The language that he uses here is a language of permanence and of singularity. It's not a bunch of women and a bunch of men get together in this. No, none of that. It's not a swapping. It's not interchangeable. It's the man and the woman. And they come together and become one flesh. Very often we've used that as a, a euphemism for the act of sex. But that's not really what it means. It's, it's partly that. But it's only that as an illustration, a physical object lesson, if you will, of what it means to join lives, to no longer be two individual persons, but united and inseparable, permanently bonded together as if you were one person. That's the picture. And God builds sexuality into that so that in the act of marriage, if you will, he said euphemistically. In that act, we are illustrating what God has built in spiritually to this sacred union. What's more, this sacred union, illustrated in the relationship and illustrated in the physical act, is intended to give us a picture, an object lesson, of God's relationship to us. Well, deal with that more specifically at another time but as we're working through this today understand marriage is designed and instituted by God as a permanent covenant not to be undone between one man and one woman in Matthew 19 Jesus addresses this uh, this picture when uh, the religious leaders try to trap him they throw a question about divorce at him is it is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason 
they want to get him into a debate about the legality of it. And Jesus pulls out the trump card and says, how about we skip all that? And we go back to what God himself said when the Father created this. And it was one man and one woman, and God joined them as one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one ever tear apart. There is a permanence in this bond. Secondly, notice, sexuality is good and God-pleasing when handled according to His design. Sexuality is good and God-pleasing when handled according to His design. So as we watch this picture unfold in Genesis 2, God gives them commands. Uh, Actually, let's back up to Genesis 1. Before we get into the details of it, we see the, the creation of man and woman, uh, male and female. And then in verse 28, he immediately follows by saying, God blessed them. He created them, created them in his image, created them specifically gendered uh, with the sex that he intended. And he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. God blessed this union. And the first command that God gives to them is to use this God-given sexuality within the context that he's designed it to increase, to be fruitful to make babies. That's the job. That's the first command that God gives before sin ever enters. So sexuality in itself, as God designed it, in the context of this covenant relationship, is good and God-pleasing. God actually smiles upon that. In the, in the wedding vows that many of you have spoken, there is a line in there where we traditionally say, to have and to hold from this day forward. Nod your head if you remember that line. Anybody familiar with that? Okay. To have and to hold from this day forward has a couple of, of innate connotations. That to have means there is a possession to it. This is part of the picture of God and His people that we'll see unfold throughout the Scriptures. That there is a possession. In becoming one flesh, the wife no longer belongs to herself but to the husband. And the husband no longer belongs to himself but to the wife. There is a having, an ownership, if you will. We belong together. I give up my rights for myself to subjugate them to this greater union. But there's another aspect, to have and to hold. Now that's not just to maintain, but that, that connotation there in the vows is the nuptial embrace. What was fornication prior to this covenant, not a matter of timing, so the idea of premarital sex is kind of a, a modern notion, it's a non-covenantal sex is fornication. It's not timing, it's covenant. What was before this moment, before this sworn holy union, fornication that displeases God, that keeps us from that relationship, now becomes something that God not only has ordained for us, 
but he is pleased by it. So much so that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament will actually command married couples not to abstain from such relations. Within marriage, you should not abstain, except for temporary uh, times, and specifically he speaks of spiritual fasting in that particular moment. But the idea of regularly not being involved in the intimacy that is endemic to marriage, that displeases God. Sexuality within the context of marriage, as God designed it, is good and wholesome, and it pleases Him. Next, notice this. Children are a blessing from God. Verse 28, He blessed them. And he said to them to go and to be fruitful and multiply. The children are a blessing. And not only are they a blessing, they are the direct result of the marriage and the sexuality. In the coming together of man and woman, something better, something beyond happens. Something that is spiritual and productive it is a reflection, what God has built into the animal kingdom at large, and human beings particularly, is the creative function that derives itself from God's nature. He is the creator. And when we come together in this way, God designed it intentionally to produce children. That is the norm. That doesn't mean that happens every time or for every, every couple, but Prior to the fall in chapter 3, that's what happened. And it's still normative for us today. Children are a blessing from God. They're not an accident. They're not something to avoid or something to regret. But they are the fulfillment of God's covenant with us. A blessing from God. Lastly, on this point, we see that marriage, sexuality, and family are inseparable concepts. They're inseparable concepts. Not only do we see them here together built into the created order, but throughout the rest of Scripture, whenever we see anything related to sexuality outside of that God-honoring context of marriage, it is an abomination to God. It is an affront. We'll deal with that more specifically later. But we see that anything that is not part of this whole overarching marriage, sexuality, family picture that he gives us is a distortion of what God intends. It is offensive to him. And it actually harms us individually and as a society. We cannot separate these ideas. Marriage, sexuality, and family are inseparable concepts. They are essentially one. Moving on, let's see not only that God intentionally built marriage, sexuality, and family into the created order, but God communicates His relationship to His people in terms of marriage, sexuality, and family. God communicates His relationship to His people in terms of marriage, sexuality, and family. He uses that language over and over again. There are some basic illustrations that, that God chooses to use in Scripture. In all the ways He could have communicated, He chooses a, a few patterns that, that give a clear picture, a better picture than others, of who He is. At the center of that is marriage. 
in sexuality and family. By an, a greater extension, we see that in civil government. We see it specifically in the nation of Israel. But when he talks about Israel, he talks about this Israel being his people in the Old Testament. He talks about them in marriage covenant language. When he talks about his church, his people in the New Testament, moving forward from Israel, including those who are faithful in Israel, but extending to us Gentiles out here, when he, uses, when he talks about the church in the New Testament, he uses marriage covenantal language. And we see, we very often will refer to the church as the bride of Christ. We see bride and bridegroom language regularly. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 54. If you're not sure where that is, go to the middle of your Bible. You'll find the Psalms. You might accidentally find Proverbs, but keep thumbing to the right from there, and you'll find the book of Isaiah. It's hard to miss because it's a big one. When you get to Isaiah, find chapter 54. It comes right after 53 and right before 55. In most Bibles, I can't speak for yours. What we see in Isaiah 54 is God actually confronting, he's been confronting uh, the nation of Israel throughout uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Most of what we see in the prophetic books is God dealing with what his people have gotten wrong. But he continually intersperses that with the reminder of his faithful covenant. As we sang earlier, as Jeff read for us from uh, Psalm 117, and we see in so many other psalms, Psalm 136 is similar to the song we sang. God's faithful, enduring love, His hesed in the Hebrew, it endures forever. It's, it's bigger than the moment. It's bigger than feelings. It's bigger than our unfaithfulness. Isaiah chapter 54, as he is dealing with... Uh, as he's dealing with Israel, he says through the prophet, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. That's a weird way to start a chapter. Follow along. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your, of your widowhood. Now, this is an interesting thing that he's saying. He's saying this to Israel as an encouragement because for 50 plus chapters, he's primarily been telling them, you done messed up. You wicked and adulterous people, I have been faithful to you. You have been unfaithful to me. You have not kept covenant with me. So therefore, all of the things that I have promised you, I am withholding. But he continually reminds them, I'm not doing this because I hate you. I'm not doing this because I'm done with you. I'm doing this because you are mine and I will bring you back into right fellowship with me, whatever it takes. 
And so Israel and Judah go through these exiles so that they are no longer a nation in themselves. They're stripped of any pride that they might have. God goes to great lengths to strip away our pride. And here in these first four, vo- four vo- verses, what God is saying to them is, don't give up. You're still mine. And while everything seems bad, you got to know, I'm going to bless you more than you ever imagined. Notice what he says in verse 5. Verse 5, incidentally, is our memory verse for today. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Verse 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. He speaks of his anger. He speaks of how he came against his people Israel, but he's not done. It's no accident, it's no coincidence that this chapter follows on the heels of chapter 53 where he describes his Messiah, his anointed one, who will come and will bear the afflictions, the sins of the people. All that is wrong between God and Israel, all that is wrong between God and humankind, will fall on the back of his Son, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. Jesus takes all of the wrath for our adultery that has left us desolate and barren. And God says, I, I am your husband. I will care for you. I will provide and protect. You have been unfaithful to me, but I will always be faithful to you. Turn a little farther in your Bible to the book of Hosea. We're going to go past Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then when we start to get to these smaller books, we see the book of Hosea. Now this is a very interesting book, and I would encourage you to read it. I've got 66 of them here I'd encourage you to read. But, But specifically in the book of Hosea, God does another weird thing. If you're not familiar with God. Maybe you haven't been walking with Him that long. God does weird stuff from our perspective. It's nicer to say the Lord works in mysterious ways, but what that really means is God does weird stuff. We don't get it, but He does. He always knows what He's doing, and there are no accidents. Hosea is a prophet that God has called to use his life. He often does this with the prophets in the Old Testament. To use his life and the events of his life as an illustration of the message he's trying to give to his people Israel. Hosea has the unenviable assignment of marrying specifically an unfaithful woman. God commands him to go and take this woman as his wife and she will publicly cheat on him so much so that she ends up enslaved and in in if i can say a bondage to this lifestyle that she's chosen 
And God uses this picture to show Israel his love for them. Take a look at chapter 2, starting with verse 2. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will, uh, then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Kind of a downer of a passage, isn't it? God is using the unfaithfulness of Hosea's wife, Gomer, to point out that this is what his people have done with him. They've chased after everything else. Now, before we look too harshly at Gomer or too harshly at Israel, let's take a look in the mirror. The two greatest commandments, according to Jesus, are to love the Lord our God with everything we've got, heart, heart, mind, soul, strength, everything. God first, ahead of everything else. How are you doing at that? You see, when, when we put anything else ahead of God, anything else, that's the same as if my wife decided to put some other man ahead of me. It's adultery. Our sin is spiritual adultery. And God goes out of his way to use these pictures, the language of marriage, sexuality, and family, to give us a hint as to the ugliness of our sin. If you've ever been heartbroken, if you've ever been betrayed, then you have just the tiniest glimpse of what our Lord feels every time you and I choose something else ahead of him but notice he doesn't end with this darkness after speaking of casting out this wife he says then she will say i will go back to my husband as at first for then i was better off than now verse 8 she has not acknowledged that i was the one who gave her the grain the new wine and oil who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Listen, God was the provider straight along. And they pursued all these things from other people, from other entities, from from the Baal, the Baals, these different uh, idols that they would worship when they tried to be like all the other people, all the other nations. All of this pursuit of other things besides God, the whole time He was the provider for them. He took care of their needs in the midst of their adultery. Verse 9, Therefore I will take away my grain when it ripens, my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. 
I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. Are, are you getting the picture here? Israel gave credit to idols, to secular society, if you will, for the things that God intended to bless her with. We do that same thing today. When we rely on secular means, on human understanding, instead of trusting in the Lord with our whole heart, when we seek our safety and we seek our prosperity ahead of seeking God's face, we are doing the same thing that they did. When we rely on the strength and reliability of government over our God providing for us, we are doing the same thing that they did. You and I must not ever put our trust in our own hand, our own ability to work, our own government, our own understanding, our own wisdom, anywhere close to, anywhere close to our reliance on God. And when we rely on God, and when we begin to see all of these things as means to glorify Him, then we can do them better than we ever did before. But not because that's where we put our trust. Jump ahead to verse 14. Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. There's an intimacy, a tenderness in this relationship. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground. <clears throat> Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the, to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. That's the, the son of the wayward woman. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This picture that God uses of marriage, sexuality, and family is throughout the entire scriptures. God communicates his relationship to his people in terms of marriage sexuality and family in the language of this notice these four things god's love is volitional god's love is volitional in other words it's a, it's a choice it's an act of the will first corinthians 13 is a passage that we read regularly at at weddings and it's 
very worthwhile. But the reason it matters for weddings is because it's written to the church, the bride of Christ. And what is true for the people of God in our interaction with one another is a reflection of the reality of Christ through our relationships. So the volitional nature of the love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, you can read it for yourself for your homework, is a picture that is not rooted in emotion. It results in emotion, in affection. You can't serve someone. You can't put their needs ahead of yours. You can't pray for someone for very long without feeling connected and invested. There's an intimacy that comes from selflessness. But God's love is volitional. He doesn't have to love us, but He does because it's who He is. And that kind of love is rooted in character. God's love <clears throat> excuse me, is volitional. Secondly, notice God's love is faithful. God's love is faithful. When you think of faithful... Think in terms of persevering, enduring. In 1 Corinthians 13, one rendering of Paul's writing says, love puts up with anything. We're pretty good at putting up with things until we decide it's too far. God's mercy is bigger. And the love that He shows to us, the faithful love that endures our wretchedness is just like he describes in Hosea and Gomer. You're unfaithful, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get your attention, but when I've got your attention, remember it's me getting your attention. And I will bring you back, and I will speak to you tenderly, and you will respond as a young lover to me, because your heart will be changed the idea that He has for us in this faithful love is demonstrated in Romans 5.8. That this faithful love is shown to us in that He gave His only begotten Son while we were still sinners, still His enemies, still far from Him and not even seeking Him. That He would die for us that we might have life in Him. God's love is volitional. God's love is faithful. Notice also, God's love is intimate. God's love is intimate. He gives us that, that picture. Not only when He says of unfaithful Israel, or Hosea speaking to Gomer, I will speak to her tenderly. I'll call her away into the wilderness. Picture a honeymoon retreat. They're, they're going off to a private place of beauty and seclusion where everything else goes away and it's just this intimate love story being played out. God was so concerned with making sure we understand the beauty of romantic love in its pure and marital context that He wrote an entire book for us from Solomon's pen. We call it the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And there was a debate for many years as to whether that was allegory or whether it's speaking of, of uh, a, a lover and beloved in a, in a real and physical way. The answer is yes, it's both. As this picture of two people in a romantic, intimate embrace 
is very, very real and literal. It is also a picture of our relationship to God. That's why it's included. And it's consistent with what he says over and over, what he illustrates in this picture, that we belong to him without any dividing between us. The picture of intimacy is to know and to be known. It's always vulnerable because it is exposed. And that's what God intends in this relationship. That's why he uses the marriage picture to illustrate it. We should be, we must be unguarded before him. We saw it in Genesis 2.25. Before sin entered, the man and the woman were naked unto one another and without shame. Perfect intimacy between the man and the woman, between humanity and its creator. Our maker is our husband. And he calls us into an intimate love with him. God's love is volitional, it's faithful, it's intimate. Notice also God's love is holy. God's love is holy. The picture we see in 1 Corinthians 13 is a holy love in that it is selfless. It's not pursuing its own gain. Lesser loves have a, if I can say, a selfish motive. And I don't mean that to, to make it sound like all lesser loves are, are evil or impure in that way. But all lesser loves have to some extent, a selfish motive. The love of family that I have because you belong to me, the, the phileo, uh, phileo love that we see uh, in the city of brotherly love in Philadelphia, this idea is a collegial love. We are fraternal. You know, we have this, this connection. So because you belong to me, then I love you. But agape love that God shows to us is different. If I may, it's one-sided. It's other. That's the nature of that word holy. It's other. It's different. It's separate. It's above and beyond all other loves. God's love for us is like that. Why is marriage the pinnacle of human relationship? Because it comprises all of the other aspects of human love. There's a connectedness, but it's also one-sided. When my wife has to put up with my junk, and I can be a pain. You don't have to say amen. She's not here. When she has to put up with my junk, it requires a one-sided love from her when I'm not lovable. And the same would apply if she were ever unlovable to her. She might hear this later. The reality of it is human, human interaction finds its pinnacle, its acme, its apex in marriage. Because marriage is intended to give us a picture of God's love. Volitional, faithful, intimate, and holy. Last point here. We'll get into the subpoints as quickly as I can. Our handling of marriage, sexuality, and family reflects our relationship to Christ. Our handling of marriage, sexuality, and family reflects our relationship to Christ. Turn, if you would, uh, into the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 5. 
little foretaste of what we'll see in the springtime. As Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church, <clears throat> he, is, uh, he is using marriage here as an illustration. The first three chapters of Ephesians give us our picture of who we are in Christ. The, the second three is what does that look like when we live it out? And what is interesting about how Paul approaches this is it kind of parallels, it kind of mirrors the approach that God gives in the Old Testament through Moses and through the prophets of how our human interaction should go. When God gives the law to Israel... There's righteousness and justice built in, but the foundation of that is that it's a reflection of their being His people. Because they're in a covenant with God, what they do, how they behave, how they interact with one another, is a reflection of Him, of His character and nature. Paul says the same sorts of things, uses the same kinds of language as he tells us how to live, in the latter three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Notice in chapter 5, it starts in verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, with be imitators of God or follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A couple of things to notice. Again, family language, your children of God. But also notice, it is to, we're to do this as Christ does it for us. Our love is a reflection of His. Jump ahead to verse 21. Speaking to the church in general, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because we submit to Christ, we have an attitude of submission toward one another. Because we have an, an attitude of submission toward one another, he then goes into detail of how that looks in various different relationships. He deals with marriage, he deals with parenting, he deals with, with your work situation. We're going to focus in on what he says to wives and husbands. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Notice, to your own husbands, it's not to every man. You're not subject to every male person out there. You are subject to your husband. And it is a volitional choice on your part because he says this is a command for you to do. You're not lesser, you're not inferior, but you are out of reverence for Christ to choose this path. The path of a submissive heart, subjecting yourself, submitting yourself to your own husband as you do to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. To the husbands, he has a little more to say, gives a little more detail. Maybe it's because we're a little thicker and he has to explain it a little more. I'm not entirely sure. But the, the, the job of the wife to submit to the husband, short and clear. Husbands... Paul doesn't want you to miss what this means for you. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Oh, that's easy. I love my wife. That's great. Piece of cake. Done. Hold on a minute. 
love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, now it's getting a little sticky. How does Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Christ makes his church holy. We are cleansed through his word. Husbands, your job in loving your wife is to lay yourself down, to surrender yourself. Your needs, your desires are of less importance than doing what is best for her. Notice that's not always what she wants. It's not every desire of hers, but what is best for her. Jesus doesn't give us everything we pray for, no matter what anybody tells you. Because sometimes what you pray for is stupid. If my children ask me for something stupid for Christmas, hey, Daddy, can I have an epidermic needle or a hypodermic needle full of drugs? I'm going to say, because I'm a good parent, no! That's stupid. If my three-year-old wants to play with a razor blade because it's shiny and seems fun, I'm going to say what? Right, because it's what? Stupid. God says the same thing to us. Husbands, your job is not just happy wife, happy life. Your job is to do all that you can, sacrificing yourself so that she can walk more closely with Christ. Our job, my job, is not just to make my wife happy, but to help her be holy. And that has to start in here. I have to make myself conscious of walking with Christ in holiness. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. One flesh, right? We are one flesh. Ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, no sane person that is. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So when I'm cold, I grab a coat or a blanket, put on a sweatshirt. Maybe turn up the heat, but I don't like to pay the extra electric bill. So as we're going through life, when you get hungry, what do you do? You eat. When you're thirsty, what do you do? When you're tired, what do you do? Okay, that's logical, right? That's the same way husbands are to love their wives. When you take care of your wife, you are feeding yourself. You are drinking. You are sleeping. You are taking care of yourself because she is you. And you are her, one flesh. This is the love. And this is how we illustrate the picture of the, of the church in Christ. Verse 31, for this reason, he quotes Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Notice what he says next. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In case you missed it, he's talking about Christ 
and the church. Your marriage is an illustration of the relationship between God and His people, between Christ and the church. And in case you thought it was just allegorical spiritual stuff, he points out, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Don't hyper-spiritualize it and say, oh yes, we're doing this in some kind of a theoretical idea. This happens where the rubber meets the road. This is why church membership matters. Being connected in a committed relationship with other people who will get on your nerves at times. With whom you will disagree at times. Because that's the only way for us to flesh out real love. Why does God illustrate this with marriage, sexuality, and family? Because this, in a practical, loving relationship, that is hard and sometimes painful. That involves intimacy and vulnerability and faithfulness and self-sacrifice. Until we're in these kinds of relationships, we can't fully grasp the love that God has for us. We don't see His character the same way. Now, not everybody here is married. Not everybody here is going to be married. Some of us have been married and, and uh, are are no longer married, whether through death or divorce or whatever the situation is. All of us come from a family. We all have parents. Now, maybe you didn't have good parents. Maybe you didn't have parents who were home with you. Maybe you had parents who did this all wrong. If that's true, you probably really get this idea. I had a... a, pastor friend who was here recently say to me grew up without a father figure he and his brother and siblings went through a lot of abuse and difficulty in their childhood and he said to me you know it made it so difficult to understand God because my picture of this God as a father that wasn't good my understanding of God as a husband wasn't good and it took a long time and it took the intervention of god's holy spirit for me to see that god's not like my dad he's not like the unfaithful husband he's not like the abusive demanding father he's not like that absent father our god is faithful his love for us is perfect don't be confused There is nothing small or temporal about marriage, sexuality, and family. Today, we got just a glimpse of the reality that we see woven throughout the Bible narrative. It's hardwired into creation itself. It's the reality that God designed marriage, sexuality, and family to illustrate His relationship to His people. Now, over the next couple of weeks here, we'll look at some specifics. Understand, God uses this special context to give us a deep understanding of His love. Let me just say that as a, as a teacher, as a coach, whenever I'm trying to instruct students, trying to teach a kid how to field a ground ball or hit a baseball or make a tackle, do math, I can tell them, 
They can read about it. They can even watch a video on it. But watching a video or even a super helpful Khan Academy math video is not the same as doing it. They will never get it until they do it. I can tell you uh, how to serve a volleyball. But you know what? I can't do it the same way my sister-in-law can do it because she's done it a lot. I can explain it because I heard her say it, and I can repeat those words. You and I, when we have heard the message of the gospel and we hear about the love of God, we can recite it, but it doesn't mean that we get it until we live in flesh and blood relationships, good and bad, and we get to see where it goes wrong. We get to see the beauty of it done right. God uses this special context to give us a deep understanding of His love, His volitional, faithful, intimate, and holy love. It's this faithful love that He demonstrated by sending His only begotten Son into the midst of our sin while we were still His enemies to give His life in our place so that by trusting in that sacrifice we might have eternal life as God's own children. He sent His Son to be the Passover Lamb. That He would carry all of our sin and face all of God's wrath just so that we could be with Him. That's the kind of love He has for us. So that we could have eternal life as His own children. May each one of us receive and reflect that indescribable gift as we live our lives for Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have given us this picture You have given us one another You've allowed each one of us to come from the family background, even the really difficult ones, that you ordained for us, setting us on a path that according to your sovereign will would lead us to the cross. Father, you don't need us. Somehow you want us. There's nothing that we have to offer you, and yet you value us. You went out of your way with your people Israel to, to say over and over, to remind them, <laughs> no matter how full of pride they became, that you didn't choose them because of them. You chose them because of your own sovereign will, your own divine character and choice. Lord, help us to see. Give us your spirit to reveal to us that that's the same way you interact with us now. You don't choose us because we're so good. <laughs> we 
but a ridiculous concept. You don't choose us because we're good or because we have something to offer you or because we're so much more spiritual and holy than other people that we get to see the truth. You choose us because you are holy and glorious and it is your will that Christ, having suffered, should yet see the light of life and see His offspring. Lord, as we close out this service today, give us a picture of the kind of pure, holy, difficult love that you have for us. Help us to receive it. For those of us who have not known that love, have not walked in, into that relationship, Lord, move us. Grab hold of our stony hearts and replace it with a soft, responsive heart. Strip away pride. Strip away anything that might keep us from acknowledging you publicly before others. That we might receive the gift of life in Jesus Christ and boldly, boldly say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Father, for those of us who are in that relationship and, and know Jesus, help us to reflect that kind of love in the way we treat others. Father, especially in our marriages in our families. Help us to redeem marriage in our culture. That you might receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, in this case the first Sunday of the new year, to celebrate our freedom by remembering the price of it. Now, it's our custom to do it on that day, but it is actually the command of our Lord, having ordained this for His church. We're participating in an ancient ceremony that goes actually all the way back to Exodus as God delivered His people from bondage in Egypt. And He used the sacrificial Passover lamb. And those who were covered by that blood had death passed them over. Jesus identified Himself with that lamb. And as he took the, the cup and the bread in their Passover celebration, he passed it among them and said, this, this bread is now representing me. This is my body. This is my body that's broken on your behalf, just like Isaiah 53. I am taking your affliction on myself. And he said, this cup is now a new covenant. This is a new way of relating to God, signed in my blood. And I'm making this life available to you if you'll receive it. But God's grace is not cheap. It came at the dearest price possible. So it's necessary for us to remember and celebrate. We do it together. That's why it's called communion. We do it with a thankful, grateful heart. That's why the Greek word Eucharist is used. It means thanksgiving. 
So as we participate in this today, just want to let you know I, I have a, a tray up here. All of these are pre-sealed because of our, our COVID protocols here, which means we don't get to use the good stuff, but they're, they're pre-sealed. And there's a, there's a station back by that door. There's a station in front of the podium here. And there's a station on the far wall over there. I did not get one put in the, on the uh, north wall. I apologize for that. Um, but I would invite you in just a moment as we, uh, as we contemplate this to get up at your own pace. And if it's not right for you, let this go. But to get up at your own pace, take one of these, return to your seat. We'll take part in it together. But as you hold this, this little cup that represents the body and blood of Christ, contemplate what that means. Confess again the sins that put him there. Confess again those dark places in your heart that you've not yet made right with God. You haven't exposed them to Him. You stay guarded. And if you are not 100% sure that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that you have found that life in Him by trusting His salvation, His cross alone for your salvation, then please, please, have the integrity to not participate today. God honors our integrity. But if you know Jesus, if you're all in with Him, this is the time to celebrate together as a family. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll go and uh, participate. Father.